Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben DiBiase, sitting in for Ben Broatmarkle. Coming up on the program, we'll talk to E.T. Malone about his research into the 1836 murder of a soldier in St. Augustine. Eventually, my search led me to St. Augustine, to the St. Augustine Historical Society Research Library, where I found all sorts of valuable information. We'll sit down with Josh Liller and learn about the work being done at the Loxahatchee River Historical Society. We are researching and getting donations from people to not just build our exhibits and help produce published works, we also help people with their research. And we'll talk about the Miami Seahawks professional football team. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Mark Twain once warned that one should never let the truth get in the way of a good story. But for independent researcher and former journalist E.T. Malone Jr., the 19th century story of a missing University of North Carolina student that eventually took on mythical proportion begged for a more thorough historical investigation. Peter Dromgoole was a University of North Carolina student who disappeared in 1833, vanished from, from the campus. No, his family never knew what became of him. And he had an uncle who was a Virginia congressman who fought a duel three years, three or four years after, after Peter, the nephew, vanished. And over time, the story of the disappearance and the uncle's duel became conflated until after a, a couple of decades, a story was told on campus that uh, Peter had been killed in a duel over the uh, affection of a young woman named Miss Fanny. But the story of Peter's disappearance and apparent death at the hands of a duelist went beyond a simple campus ghost story. It stayed like that for, for a long, long time. Uh, eventually, students who had heard the story formed a secret society in 1889 called the Order of Gimgul. The Gimguls uh, eventually in 1925 built a stone castle, a full-size medieval castle with uh, tapestries and weapons and, and so forth, and uh, used that as the headquarters for their secret society. Malone recently wrote a book about the incident entitled Dromgul Twice Murdered, unraveling a southern legend of duels, disappearance, seminal wars, secret societies, mystery, castles, and flagler's millions. His research took him all over the southeast. I had been interested in that story for a long time, and I realized that the only way that I could find out what really happened to the disappeared student and to document all of the, the legend and so forth was to look into archival material. I looked at the Southern Historical Collection at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill 
which has material from all over the South, not just North Carolina material, and found manuscript collections that had letters of the, the Drumgoole family. And then I looked at the Rubenstein rare book collection at Duke University and found more Drumgoole papers. And then I found others at the College of William and Mary, also at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And uh, then eventually my search led me to St. Augustine, to the St. Augustine Historical Society Research Library where I found all sorts of valuable information. What Malone uncovered was a story perhaps far less romantic, but no less fascinating. I discovered through looking at military records, I went to the National Archives as well, I forgot to mention that, and found that this young man, the student, had, um, under an assumed name, had joined the Army, and, uh, been, and his unit had been shipped to Florida during the Second Seminole War. In, uh, late in 1835. The Army records showed me that he had been killed, and I thought at first had been killed by Indians, but it turned out that he had been murdered in St. Augustine, hence the title of my book, Dromgul Twice Murdered. He was murdered in the legend, uh, and then he really was murdered. So uh, when I came to St. Augustine, I found much to my surprise and delight that they had microfilm of the newspaper surviving from 1836 and 37 with a full account of the murder trial. Drom Gould's adventure in the Army had led him to the war in Florida, but it was a fellow serviceman who ultimately took his life. One clue led me to another, and uh, when I went to the National Archives in Washington, I found old U.S. Army court-martial records, and I found that the murderer had in fact been court-martialed three years earlier for being drunk on duty and had been reduced in rank. And he'd been in the Army about 15 years, but he was still a private because he he kept getting in trouble. And Dromgul, who was probably about 15 years younger than the man who killed him, was a sergeant. And I can see perhaps the, the older man resenting the fact that this kid was his superior officer and resenting taking orders from him. And then he was drunk to boot. He lashed out at him and and shot him and killed him. The Second Seminole War was an extremely difficult assignment for most soldiers. Disease, inclement weather, and the drudgeries of routine army life drove many of these men to the brink. It was in the St. Francis Barracks in St. Augustine, which is still there, headquarters of the Florida National Guard now. And Dromgul had been the sergeant on duty that night and heard a disturbance down in another part of the building. And he went to check on it and uh, found the Irish private uh, intoxicated and causing a disturbance. And he, and he asked him to stop. And I didn't realize then, when the private had been court-martialed three years earlier, he was put on hard labor for six months, and his pay was reduced in half for a year. So there were severe consequences that had happened to him before, and uh, That was another exacerbating element in this encounter. The private probably felt that, gosh, if they get me for being drunk on duty again, more hard labor, my pay will be reduced again. But if I hadn't found that out at the National Archives, that gave me some context and some background. Every archive, every archival uh, source that I was able to work with gave me just a little bit more context, a little bit more enrichment, you know, for trying to tell this story. 
The trial was presided over by soon-to-be territorial governor of Florida, Robert Raymond Reed. In his diary, which the St. Augustine Research Library had, he mentioned that he was opposed to capital punishment, which was an interesting position for a judge at that time in the 1830s. He said, what, what right uh, does man have to take another life? I remember that direct quotation from his diary. Nevertheless, the fellow who killed Drangul was eventually executed and was hanged. And he was imprisoned in the Castillo de San Marcos for, uh, from April 1836 until July 1837. And when he was hanged, he made a speech from the gallows, which was printed in the newspaper. And he talked about how he had no hard feelings against anyone. He was a native of Ireland, and he said the only reason that he killed the uh, Dromgul was that he was drunk, and he didn't know what he was doing. Probably in this day and age, he would have not been charged with first-degree murder. It would have been something, a lesser charge. He probably wouldn't have been executed, but that was 150 years ago. With the story of Dromgul's final moments now clear, it was time for Malone to bring his evidence back to UNC and the Order of the Gimgul. The secret society, the Order of the Gimgul, that was what was formed, has been very interested in my book because uh, I found many things that they didn't know about. Uh, they, uh, they didn't know what had happened to Peter Dromgul. You know, their whole secret society was based on the legend, the almost myth, of his disappearance and just vanishing into thin air. They had fantasized all sorts of things about what might have happened to him. So um, they have uh, bought a lot of the books <laughs> and wanted to know about it. And I, I guess from now on when that story is told to incoming freshmen, uh, they'll have to tell them that, well, he didn't really completely vanish. He went off and joined the army, went to Florida, and was killed in the Seminole War, and so on. So my, so my research is going to affect how that legend goes forward now. The Order also knew very little about the architectural history of their castle, but Malone found documents from one of its earliest members all the way down in Louisiana. I discovered that the, the castle, the architect for the castle, was uh, a man who had been a member of the secret society, but he had, after he graduated from the university, had gone to New Orleans and had become um, a very successful architect there and taught at Tulane. Well, Tulane had his papers, and I discovered that um, he had done some preliminary architectural renderings of the castle that no one in North Carolina knew anything about. And uh, through searching through the archives at Tulane, I found some undiscovered drawings that I was able to use as illustrations in the book. When Dromgul was killed, the other men in his company thought so highly of him that they purchased a marble headstone at their own expense. Something happened to Dromgul's original tombstone because the stone that's there now is one of the standard-issue Army tombstones that was put in about 1907. And I wondered what happened to the original tombstone. One day with a friend, uh, we went there to the cemetery and took a metal probe to where his grave is. I found an old cemetery notebook that had odd entries about where graves were located, in the, and they'd say it was the Dromgul grave. It had 12 inches east, 4 feet, 12 inches one way, and 4 feet another way. 
couldn't make sense of it. And I thought, maybe when they put in the new tombstones, when they were lining all of this up, his grave isn't really right in front of the tombstone. And, and what happened to the old one? So we took a probe and took those measurements from the old notebook, 12 inches over one way, four feet another way, and probed, and about, about a foot underground, there's a hard rectangle that is exactly the size that the 1836 flat tombstone would have been. Of course we didn't dig, but someday I want to get permission from someone to make a small excavation to see if that old original tombstone is still there. E.T. Malone Jr.'s book, Dromgul Twice Murdered, unraveling a Southern legend of duels, disappearance, seminal wars, secret societies, mystery, castles, and Flagler's millions, takes readers on a thrilling journey and helps clear up an institutional mystery nearly two centuries old. You're listening to Florida Frontiers. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. If you've ever visited Jupiter, Florida, you've likely seen the historic 105-foot-tall Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse guarding the inlet's entrance. The Loxahatchee River Historical Society is responsible for the maintenance and preservation of this historic site. We sat down with Josh Liller, historian and collections manager for the organization. Josh, the Loxahatchee River Historical Society has been around since 1971, is that right? That's correct. We got started through a little alliance of some of the remaining pioneers in the area, along with uh, concerned newcomers and local civic groups that all got together and formed a nonprofit. Jupiter was undergoing a lot of growth, as many places in Florida were at that time period, and they realized there's a lot of history they didn't want to have lost. So they got a museum in the oil house next to our lighthouse back in 1973 with good partnership with the Coast Guard at that time, and it grew over the years. We worked with a pioneer home and ran that in town for a while. We got a muse- our first museum in 1988. In 2006, we moved into our current building, which is a former World War II married men's quarters near the lighthouse from a naval radio station that used to be on the same property as the lighthouse. And in 1994, we got a lease with the Coast Guard And this allowed us to take tours to the top of the lighthouse and made us responsible for keeping it in good shape, doing the restoration, painting, cleaning, all that stuff. It is still a public aid to navigation, so the Coast Guard has final responsibility for the optic. Uh, We help out a little bit there with their approval. And we keep it, with especially that Fresnel lens, which is a wonderful historical artifact, still in use today, still shining every night. 
And so people today can come and see our museum uh, about local history. We are the historical society for the Loxahatchee River region, which is mostly Jupiter and Tequesta, uh, but we get into some of the older history of Juneau Beach, uh, Jupiter Island, Hobe Sound, work with some of the other groups there. And then the lighthouse, and we have the Tyndall House, which is an 1891 pioneer home that we've moved and restored on the site. And we talk about all the way back to the early Native Americans, uh, Hobe for our area. We have a archaeological site on the property that was something that they or their ancestors had built, uh, one of the shell mounds, one of the few remaining in our area. Now, Josh, you also operate an archive, is that right? So you collect historic material from the region. Correct. As local historical society, we are researching and getting donations from people to not just build our exhibits and help produce published works. We also help people with their research. We have a limited amount of uh, space and time that people can kind of come in and do it in person. I answer a lot of reference questions through social media and email and and just walk-in questions. One of our long-term goals is a larger museum on the site, which will include more archivals and storage space on site and a real proper research facility for people to come in and uh, work with our collections more and do more research. As you mentioned, the time period that the Loxahatchee Historical Society covers, historically speaking, is fairly broad. What are some of the more interesting and and curious collections that, uh, that you've come across working there as a historian? Well, one of the things I've done working off of a previous author's research Uh, Jim Snyder wrote a book called Light in the Wilderness about the lighthouse in the early days of the area with the very early pioneers back in almost the Seminole War period in some cases. Uh, And I've been building on that research lighthouses. A lot of times the stories that people, what people think they know about them, ours and many other lighthouses isn't quite accurate. And there's a lot of good research that can be done in places like the National Archives and going through old newspapers and it's, it's been a fun discovery process to help get all the stories right. Our three biggest collections, one called the Du Bois Collection, which mostly comes from Bessie Du Bois. She was really Jupiter's first historian. She was married into a pioneer family. She was an early resident herself. She came down as a child in 1913. And she got really interested in the history of the area and started talking to people and collecting stories, collecting photographs. And it was is a great, great source of information and records and really, you could call it the backbone of our collection. Uh, the second collection is the Carlin Collection, which is one of our earliest pioneer families. They ran a hotel called the Carlin House. They operated the life-saving station in Jupiter. They had a lot of kids that were in the area. Uh, their grandson, Carlin White, has a bridge named after him in town. He was later the mayor. He had a military career. And so he collected a lot of the family stuff because uh, he was really interested in history. That came to us in uh, about a decade ago now. And our latest big donation comes from the Gladwin family. They have been in the area since the 40s, and they were just very passionate about local history. So they're very actively collecting things off of eBay and from other people who would, would give them things. So it's a great collection of everything from postcards to stereo views Uh, to kind of miscellaneous historical documents, uh, mostly to our local area that we were uh, very happy to to get this forever home for them. Now, most people would automatically picture the lighthouse as being the, the centerpiece of the history of the Jupiter region, but your organization is uncovering and working on some very different projects, right? 
Correct. The lighthouse is the big obvious draw. It's on all the business logos. It's literally impossible to miss. It's on the town's logo. Uh, but the lighthouse isn't even the full story of just the site that we're on. Just to start, our property is 120 acres. We had it 11 years ago designated by Congress the Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse Outstanding Natural Area. It's the original grounds of the lighthouse reservation set aside in the 1850s by a presidential executive order, but now preserved by Congress so it can't be taken away. And it preserves not only the lighthouse, but also the undeveloped property around it, which there's not a huge amount of that down in our area. So it's great to have that nature preserved as well as the history. The Bureau of Land Management is now the official landowner. They've just finished the transfer from the Coast Guard. Our historical society had been working with the Coast Guard and will continue to work with the Bureau of Land Management, doing the historical interpretation, taking care of the lighthouse. They focus predominantly on that nature part of the property. Besides the lighthouse, we had a weather bureau, one of the, the first in South Florida on our site. We had the naval radio station I mentioned briefly earlier. Marines guarded the naval radio station in World War II. The Air Force had a tracking station on the north side of the property to monitor missile tests out of Cape Canaveral. So we have all five branches of the military on there. Just up the road, Jonathan Dickinson State Park was Camp Murphy, a World War II training base. And all sorts of little bits of the civilian history of the area from our little narrow gauge Celestial Railroad to the being the terminus of the steamboat lines coming down from Titusville during that era. Uh, to a long time as a, an agriculture community centered around uh, the Pennock Plantation and asparagus plumosa fern for the background of floral arrangements, which today nobody knows what that is unless they come visit us. Well, very good. Josh, thanks so much for sitting down with us. It's uh, very, very interesting information. Happy to share it. Josh Liller is historian and collections manager for the Loxahatchee River Historical Society and Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse and Museum. This is Florida Frontiers. The first professional football team in Florida was not the Dolphins, the Jaguars, or the Bucks. As historian Robert Casanello tells us, it was actually the Miami Seahawks. The team was located in Miami, and it was a team was called the Miami Seahawks, and they were part of the All-America Football Conference, a conference that was organized in 1944. Uh, by Arch Ward, who was the sports editor of the Chicago Tribune, and who had in, was the inventor of the baseball's all-star game and the college all-star game uh, in football. Miami was obviously not a big league town at this point. It turns out Miami was the smallest of any of the cities that had an AAFC franchise. It turned out also that in the end it probably did not have enough fan base to support it over time. That was Dr. Richard Cropo author of NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. He spoke to me about the 1946 Miami Seahawks, the very first professional football team to call Florida home. The Seahawks were part of a short-lived All-American Football Conference, or the AAFC, that was a rival to the National Football League. The Seahawks only lasted one season. Dr. Cropeau tells us why this new league and team emerged after World War II. Professional football was still at the margins. 
the NFL was at the margins. The AAFC certainly was at the margins. What, what the founders of the league were looking at in the late 40s was their belief that coming out of the war, there was going to be a kind of prosperity uh, in America, uh, and that that prosperity would generate more leisure time, and more leisure time could be transformed into more organized sport as entertainment. And a lot of people who invested in the AAFC, and some of the people who were investors in the NFL were looking to make some money. Then there are always those people who get into professional sport because they're looking for exposure to promote themselves, to salve their own ego. And certainly that was involved with some owners as well. Dr. Crapeau tells us why they struggled. Well, I think if they had a winning season, they might have, they might have survived. I don't think they were ever going to make a lot of money because it, the city just wasn't big enough. You just weren't going to draw that many people out. If people were going to go watch football, they were probably going to go watch the Miami Hurricanes. And you had to give them some reason to come to watch the Seahawks. Seahawks didn't have any big stars any big players, so why go there? Initially, they drew 25, 26,000 fans for the first couple of games, but they were losing almost all the time. They lost seven out of their first eight games, and the fan base just disappeared. Uh, In the second half of the season, they were drawing about 9,000 fans. They wound up facing bankruptcy at the end, and uh, they couldn't get enough money to keep the team going. The Seahawks had a difficult relationship with the Cleveland Browns. One of the things that really hurt them initially is they had to play their first three games on the road. And they had to play their first game against Cleveland and the Cleveland Browns. And it turns out the Cleveland Browns was the best, by far the best team in the new league, probably the best team in professional football. Certainly by 1950, they were the best team in professional football. But many people would argue even in 46, they were that good. Uh, the, the opening game they lost, I think, 44 to nothing, and it was downhill from there, as they say. Later in the season, when Cleveland came to play Miami at home, the game would be notorious for the racial climate that was present in the city. Cleveland had two African-American players, and when they were scheduled to come and play in Miami, uh, and when they were, they played, of course, the first game in Cleveland uh, against Miami, and there was no issue there. But when they were scheduled to come down to Miami to play, first of all, the, the Miami ownership notified uh, the Cleveland Browns and Paul Brown that they, they should not bring their African-American players, that there was a law in Florida against interracial competition in sport, and they would not be allowed to play. And there was a good deal of consternation in the Browns organization about what to do and whether to challenge this. And in the end, I think what persuaded them not to bring the players was there were a number of threats. Uh, that came to the players from people in Miami. And in the end, Paul Brown thought, you know, this was not going to be a difficult game. He didn't have to have all of his players. They were going to win easily. And why risk? Uh, Why put somebody at risk uh, for that? And so they didn't uh, bring their players. Uh, And so it's one one of those another little interesting dark moments in the history of segregation in sport at a time period uh, when sport was desegregating. The NFL desegregated in 1946, uh, and, and essentially the AAFC never had to desegregate because they never had segregation. They had African-American players from the beginning. That was Dr. Richard Cropot, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. 
Until then, you can find us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for this week's program comes from Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben DiBiase, sitting in for Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.